1: Ah, Welcome to Heard Tell. It is Monday, March the 14th, year of our Lord 2022. So thrilled to be with you. Hope you had a great weekend with you and yours wherever you are across the street or around the world. Hope you did some good eating. Hope you did some good fellowshipping. Hope things are well where you are. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world. We're going to turn down the noise on some of it. Going to talk a little politics today. Uh, We're going to talk about the messaging by President Biden and the Democratic Party going in To the midterm elections, they're trying out a few things, putting some balloons up. We're going to see which one's floated, which one's popped. Also, uh, the Iowa caucuses, I know 2024 feels like a long way away. It's not, and especially determining how we're going to elect our next president or if President Biden's going to get reelected, whether or not they have the Iowa caucuses is going to be a big, big deal. It's also going to change how people do their strategy. When people get in and out of the race, we're going to talk Iowa caucuses a little bit later on. Great guest today, uh, Grace Baderic. I'm still probably not saying that right, as you'll hear from our interview. Great guest, another Young Voices uh, contributor. She's also a working actress and in the arts. So we're going to talk about a piece she wrote about, Calvin Ball. If you're not familiar with the term Calvin Ball, she'll break that all down for you, as opposed to how governments have dealt with things like the COVID-19 pandemic, how the rules seem to change all the time. That's what Calvin Ball gets into. But the second half of that conversation, also an important one, we're going to talk a little bit about the arts and culture, something COVID-19 took away from a lot of folks, took away the culture scene and the arts scene. We're going to get into that, how that's important to us as humans and as people, and it helps us uh, maybe keep some perspective on the COVID-19 pandemic. She's also a New York dweller. She can talk about the early days of the pandemic as opposed to now. Grace Bedellick, uh on the program today, excited to have her, but let's start Uh, with what is dominating the news, once again, Ukraine and Russia. uh, Russia is just leveling cities now. They're blatantly attacking civilians. Everything they're doing is a war crime. The war itself is a war crime because wars of aggression are illegal under an international law. Uh, But there's a little bit of a side story we want to pay attention to because we'll be talking about Ukraine all this week like we have been for the last two weeks. Um, From the BBC, uh, the EU and U.S. helps Ukraine – China helps Russia, writes the BBC. If that's how this goes, then it's a delineation that will make the war in Ukraine an even more consequential one. The White House has decided to make public its claim. Just as President Biden's top security advisor is due to meet China's most senior diplomat, it appears to be a tactical move to put pressure on China, presumably to either conform or deny it. The bigger aim could be to try to make Xi Jinping weigh up the pros and cons of his current position of what last week was called a, quote, rock-solid relationship with Moscow. Remember that it was just weeks ago that the Winter Olympics were opened in Beijing. President Xi and Putin declared a new alliance that had, quote, no limit. Well, a few things changed since then. Uh, Back to the BBC, military aid could clearly be part of that. But in the days after Russia's invasion, China has condemned the U.K., the U.S. and others for giving weapons to Ukraine's military, saying they were adding, quote, fuel for the fire. If the U.S. intelligence assessment is correct and Beijing follows through on that request then they too would be adding fuel to the fire. All right, let's back up. I know a lot of people are worried about the barren dragon. Look, Russia and China is never going to be a natural alliance. They're not natural allies. They're natural opponents. However, uh, let's pay attention to what's really happening here. This is more than just geopolitics. One of the things we always say on this program is, is when you're not sure about the truth, follow the money. The money will get you to the truth. What China wants to do here, and what they're probably going to take advantage of is not so much militarily with Russia, although they'll do that because they're perfectly happy and it suits their, main, their aims for Putin to be a chaos agent in the rest of the world. But what they're really going after here is they want Russia in debt to them, both physically in debt and morally and consequentially in debt to them for helping them out when basically nobody else will. China has a pattern here. They, we've seen it in Africa, We in the Belt and Road Initiative. They offer money, they offer aid, they offer assistance, but they're going to get theirs back. The Chinese Communist Party's planning is very, very long term. It's hard for us to get our hands around it because we think so short term, but they got 10-year, 15, 50-year plans on how these things are going to go. A Russia that is in debt to China and dependent on China makes China all the more Powerful. Take note, Uh, we already know over in Africa, in Uganda, uh, China is using debt to take over critical infrastructure. They're talking about maybe taking over an airport in Uganda because Uganda defaulted on a debt that was loaned them. Imagine a China that has Russia on a string because of economic debt payments and because of moral and ethical complaints, because they're the only ones that would help them when nobody else would. This is a dangerous alliance. I don't think it's a real alliance in the fact that they like each other. It's more convenient. But China's playing the long game here. They know that a Russia that's dependent on them and weakened automatically makes them even more strong. Remember, China also competes with Russia in things like arms sale and exporting foreign policy power. And Things like security, Russia's made quite a trade on selling security all around the world. With their military getting uh, bogged down in Ukraine, their military weaponry getting destroyed by the Ukrainians fighting from underneath and being the underdogs, that's going to hurt those military sales. And China is going to be perfectly happy to step in the gap and fill that. There's a lot of moving parts to geopolitics. Especially when you're dealing with people like Xi Jinping and Putin, who are wicked, evil, brutal dictators who have no problems brutalizing their own people and other people of the world. Putin is committing war crimes daily live on our live streams. All we got to do is pay attention to it. We've already detailed on this program China's human rights abuses to the Uyghur people, Hong Kong and plenty of others. Bad people tend to congregate because nobody else wants to deal with them. This is a marriage of convenience, but it's a dangerous marriage because Russia that will be, by its nature, no matter what happens in Ukraine here, weaker, more destabilized, and more isolated, is going to become more and more dependent on China. It's just one more of a big mess that's going to come out of this disastrous Ukraine situation. I'm not sure Putin fully understands what he's done here, but let's be clear-eyed about what happens next. Everything that happens from here on out is bad. There's not a lot of good here. We're choosing the least bad of many bad options. If Ukraine can hold out and manage to keep the Russians from completely taking over their country, that's what we're rooting for because the bad guy needs to lose here and the innocent people of Ukraine don't need to suffer under his boot heel. But that's still going to be a country utterly destroyed by war. That will destabilize Russia, probably destabilize Belarus as well since they're helping them out, and China wants to take advantage of that. And China more empowered – Is something that we're going to be dealing with for generations to come. These things all go together. They don't have neat, clean answers and buzzwords. We shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that if we just do this one thing, everything will be hunky-dory afterwards. It's not how foreign policy works. That's not how the world works. As we always say on here, human nature is undefeated. People like Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping have showed us what their nature is. It's to dominate, destroy, and crush for their own power and glory. And they're going to figure out a way to make this situation better them. China loves chaos because they can appear to be the stable one. Something to keep an eye on going forward. More hotel right after this. Welcome back to Heard and Tell, I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for sticking with us. Uh, some domestic politics, real quick. Uh, the Biden administration and the Democratic Party are trying to get their messaging set for the midterm elections. And we've seen a lot of it in social media. We've seen it from the president himself. He means tested some of this in the State of the Union, and the Democratic Party's doing it. Uh, it's not going well. It's incongruent. It's not matching up. doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, I understand what they're trying to do, but they're doing it poorly here's the problem when you have nancy pelosi at the podium saying that of course government spending doesn't have anything to do with inflation government spending is fixing inflation uh, people going to recoil they know that that's just not true now i understand maybe she's getting at some policies that they're aiming at it but yes you can't just spend like a drunken sailor as a government and not affect inflation let's be adults here uh, president biden's got a similar problem. The White House is really pushing back in the Democratic Party and their media outlets and the people that are in their fears of influence have really been pushing the narrative that gas prices are all Vladimir Putin's fault. Now, that's not true. We already detailed it on this show. It's true from this point forward. It's driving up gas prices, but gas prices were already high. People know this. They were already going up. I understand what President Biden's trying to do, but it's incongruent. And then at the same time, he'll turn around and say, As he did when he met with Democrats at their retreat this past weekend, all the economic recovery is because of Democrats and Republicans. Hold on a second. You see the problem here? You're saying with one hand, all the good parts are all yours and all the bad stuff isn't yours to blame. That's not how this works. You can't pick and choose which parts. Now, I know they're going to do it for messaging and it may even work. But you end up looking silly to a whole lot of people who aren't super online, who don't follow talking points. It just sounds like you're talking out of both into your mouth. I know it takes a lot more political courage than most of our politicians have, and that'd be of both parties, to just say, hey, here's why this is, and go forward. But didn't we learn during COVID, saying you know when you don't know, or saying something that just ain't so, and it's easily provable so, that sows more disbelief in government. It makes you look silly. People don't want to believe you. You can talk about, hey, gas prices are up because they're a lagging indicator, and then Putin invaded Ukraine, and that's going to push them even higher. That's straight talk. Give that a shot. And yes, you get some credit for the economy, but you also get some blame for it. That's part of sitting in the big chair. Try to be straight with the American people. They may bang you for it a little bit, but they'll get on you a whole lot worse for trying to talk out of both sides of your mouth and talking to them like they're stupid. More hotel right after this. <laughs> Ah, uh, this should be fun. Welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson, another Young Voices co- uh, contributor—not competitors. We have some friendly competitions, but a contributor with Young Voices, uh, Grace Bedalek. Did I get it right that time? I've been practicing it.
0: Unfortunately, no.
1: Dang it's it! What was it?
0: It's Bedalek. Like Bedalek.
1: See, I see Dalek, and I start thinking Doctor Who, and, and it it's Grace Bedalek. Think,
0: think your daughter's bedazzle. You know?
1: Bedazzle Bedalek. All right, oh. Grace Bedalek. She's a performer. She's an artiste, uh, an actor. Uh, She also does commentary through Young Voices, which we're going to be talking about today because she's been writing. How are you? I'm
0: doing well. I'm doing great. Got my coffee. Got your coffee. coffee.
1: Doing better than I am with pronunciation. Fortunately, you're (laughs) an outstandingly good writer. Uh, You took to the pages of um, Detroit's Press and -hmm. talked about, I love this term so much, so just explain it to everybody, but for folks that aren't very online and doesn't know the online parlances and the memes involved here, what does Calvin Ball mean?
0: You know, uh, it's not so much being online um, that would allow people to to know this term. Uh, my brother and up, my brother and I grew up reading Bill Watterson's phenomenal comic books, Calvin and Hobbes, and I think that's probably where a lot of our antics um, came from, but we would laugh. We would just like lay in bed and read these comic books for hours and hours and hours on end and just laugh ourselves to sleep. And so this game, Calvin Ball, is something that's born out of Calvin's imagination. Um, And he and Hobbes uh, play in the backyard and they make up the rules as they go along. There's a quote in the book that says, the only permanent rule is that you can never play the same way twice. Um, And so that's where that's where the term came from.
1: Now, that makes for excellent comic strip material. But as a governing (laughs) philosophy, this does not work quite as well. And that's kind of what you were drilling down in the piece you were writing about uh, where you invoked the specter of Calvin Ball.
0: Right. It's very cute coming from Calvin and Hobbes. But unfortunately, when it comes from our political betters, um, not so much.
1: Now, we ran into this uh, North Carolina where I have a home where we talk about, well, we're going to believe the experts and we're going to believe the science. Okay, great. Who's the experts and who's the science? And from Governor Roy Cooper, we never actually got a list of who the experts were, oddly enough. You found this looking at a couple of different blue state governors of when they start to change the rules, or in the specific case now, as they start to relax the rules, there doesn't seem to be a lot of rhyme or reasons to these things. And then it lets people kind of mind wander to things like, okay, is it coincidence that, the political winds blow one way, polling goes one way, public opinion goes one way, or are they actually trying to follow some sound advice? And that's why you invoke the Calvin Ball imagery here.
0: Yes, precisely. That's exactly why I invoked the the Calvin Ball imagery. Unfortunately, I think when you talk about um, experts, uh, specifically, we've been listening to people who um, do not have their best intentions in mind or um, do not have... uh, our best interests as a people in mind. Um, so the science hasn't changed. Uh, we're just being gaslit. All right.
1: So some folks want to be more generous and say that this is just a habit of, you know, the mass nation's a normal government. It's top down. We're trying to do one size fits all. There's a lot of do something involved here. Generous approach is to think that, okay, this is just how the government always does things. They reactionary. They're trying to do one size fits all. Uh, But you think with some of the data that you're seeing and some of the trends we've seen with the two years that we've been doing this, that might be too generous of an application for what's actually happening here?
0: Yes, I think that that is is far too generous. Uh, As we've seen, unfortunately, case counts are higher than they've ever been. Um, And uh, the legislation, which is coming down um, from blue state governors uh, and from the federal government at large, uh, is not congruent um, with the with the data.
1: Now the problem too is the data and the optics don't always run alongside. You're talking about blue state governors. We just had a massive nationwide event in a blue state in California in the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. and that seemed to really be a watershed for a lot of people because you had I, I don't know how many people fit in the SoFi Stadium seventy thousand probably sixty thousand all the politicians, all the major, you know, major stars, the, the eyes of the whole country are on it. It's the biggest TV show every single year. And you have, you know, Governor Gavin Newsom, who's been a big proponent of a lot of this stuff. He's there unmasked. He's hanging around. There's not a mask to be seen anyway yeah. that along with the state of the union where nobody was masked, that really seemed to be kind of a watershed moment to a lot of folks.
0: Yes, I think it was. I think the optics have been, have been really egregious. I mean, as you said, Uh, We've seen an unmasked Gavin Newsom and Eric Garcetti next to a famously immunocompromised basketball player, (laughs) Magic Johnson. And then we also saw a few weeks back an unmasked Stacey Abrams smiling in a sea of masked kids, um, which I think for parents specifically um, was the watershed moment that you're talking about.
1: Why do you think the kids bother folks? Like this is beyond just a parent thing, because of course parents are always touchy about their kids, no matter what, to to various degrees of you know justified and unjustified. Sometimes the school <laughs> thing really seemed to slam home. I've written about it because, like you know, in. The elementary school and the high school in my community is right across the street from a shopping center. So for 15 months, the school is completely shut down because we can't go over there. But all the exact same people are across the street, seeing each other in the grocery store and the McDonald's across the street. And it's the same people in the same confines for all practical purposes. I think people are realizing maybe there should have been a little bit better way to do it. But again, the optics are just incongruent and there's just not a stat in the world for people to go like, this doesn't make sense that across the street we're all going to die. But here we can still function normally.
0: Right, 100%. I mean, in New York, it took a full month after mask mandates were lifted in the city for the same thing to happen for the the kids in public schools. Um, And I think it's so irksome because we've known from the outset of this pandemic that healthy children have the lowest probability of developing serious illness from COVID. And they also have the lowest probability of passing it to each other. So when we're looking at cumulative mortality stats, you know, in states reporting, 0.00 to 0.01 of all child COVID-19 cases have resulted in death. Um, and so we, we've, we've seen uh, just how, I don't want to say inconsequential, um, but uh, just how unlikely this is to impact them in a negative way. And we've also seen, on the other hand, um, just how much negative impact uh, mask mandates um, and, uh, lack of education, uh, have had on our children over the past two years.
1: Yeah. Talking to Grace Vidalic, uh, Young Voices contributor, a performer. Let's go back in time though. You brought up New York city, kind of the national awareness of the things we had the NBA player and then the NBA shut down. That's when everybody kind of went, Oh, okay. But it was New York city. That's where it kind of really broke out. And of course that's a media hub. So anything that happens in New York gets amplified to the rest of the country. Go back to that because you were there for that. You're a New York uh, dweller. Go back to that time, though, and kind of compare it to now, because what what did they do then? And looking back on it now, because that's when everybody started really paying attention to this is like we're shutting down New York City. That's shocking to people.
0: Yeah, it was shocking to people. Um, That was when Cuomo was in office. I remember it very well. Um, It was middle of March. It might have 12th or 13th, when the world it seemed shut down entirely. And I remember uh, I had a full social calendar, a full work calendar, and within about 24 hours, everything that I had scheduled for the rest of my life was off the table. Um, And I remember things just dropping off my calendar one by one by one by one, and thinking to myself, like, oh, they're not gonna, they're not gonna, you know, they're not gonna keep me out of work for more than three weeks. It's not going to happen. Or, oh, they're not going to cancel the United Airlines half that my dad and I are supposed to run together. Oh, they're not going to cancel the New York City Marathon. And one by one, these things just started to drop. Um, And I also remember being in, I don't know, a Trader Joe's and seeing two grown men getting in a fight, a physical altercation over toilet paper and cauliflower gnocchi. Um, and unfortunately, that was the moment where I realized, oh, people, people are scared. People are really scared. And we've never seen like we've never seen anything like this in our lives. Um, and my my parents, uh, when Trump floated the idea of a of an international travel ban or of a national travel ban, uh, said, hey, what's up? get you a ticket. You could come back home for a couple of days, just for a weekend, wait it out. Um, and I ended up being home for about five months. So it's kind of a crazy time.
1: Yeah. And the reason I wanted to go back and go back to the beginning is because, and you touched in on it, on your piece, a lot of what's happening here is, and we can talk about science. and We can talk about data and stats. You've got a stat, uh, 70% of surveyed are just tired or frustrated by the state of the pandemic. I don't think the coverage we spend a lot of time is like you had this massive emotional thing at the beginning of this, but then it went on for two more years after that. And that's why I wanted to kind of go back and touch on that again. You wrote it in your piece. It's a center part of your piece. There's a lot of just frustration involved in this too, isn't there?
0: I mean, 15 days to slow spread, right? It's, it's, the polls have, have really plummeted for Democrats, Um, faith in the president and federal health agencies have really taken a nosedive. Um, Real Clear Politics was reporting uh, that a mere 39% of Americans approve of of Biden's performance, and 52% strongly disapprove. And that was a couple of weeks ago. So I can't imagine what they're feeling now, with everything happening 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 in in Ukraine. Um, and his approval rating right now, as we speak, sits even lower than that of his president predecessor, uh, Donald Trump. To cap that off, as of late January. Democrats had lost a whopping 14 polling points in just one year. Um, and so that actually constitutes the largest polling shift in Gallup's 30-year history. So we're seeing massive ramifications uh, for Democrats in the polls.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of it isn't just how they handled it. I think it goes back to this Calvin Ball thing you were talking about. We've had you know, the health experts that we have on our program, Dr. Michael Siegel, these guys, They always say, look, science, you got to be consistent. And the the key to good science is saying, when you don't know, say you don't know. And there was a lot with this stuff. We know the deaths are horrible. Just about everybody probably knows somebody that had a serious illness and God forbid they had a death involved because the deaths are serious. But -hmm. the government didn't seem to take it serious or you can't take the government serious when they don't have a consistency to their policies. And that's where the people get frustrated.
0: Right. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Um, We've seen also uh, just on the topic of deaths, I mean, we've seen the government making policies uh, off of uh, uh, case rates and not uh, hospitalization and death rates as well, which I think is something that has really frustrated people. Because for a lot of people, for children, for young adults uh, who are ready to get their lives back in motion, um, this this disease was this uh, this virus was not was not necessarily a serious uh, threat from the beginning.
1: Yeah. Um, talking to Grace. I think it's one of those things, the old Vince Carly quote of, you know, um, you know, a statistics are kind of like a light pole. Th- people think it's for illumination, but mostly it's just to hold up a drunk. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's stats for everything. Mm-hmm. And it felt to a lot of folks that the best stats were one thing, and they even debated how some of those were tabulated. But then when you started talking case rates, but then you'd switch to the death rates. But then when that changed, then you switch back to the case rates again. Just the just the confusion of what we're talking about is bad science, but it also makes for bad governance, doesn't it?
0: Right, 100%. And actually, uh, studies that were used by the CDC to push universal masking in schools across the country, uh, as you're saying, have been kind of largely debunked because they haven't been conduct- conducted in uh, in uh, in sound ways so they haven't controlled for vaccination rates or other mitigation measures measures and they fail to account for harm done by masking to students mental health and development um, or as we were saying the 0.02 percent COVID fatality rate among children Um, and so a lot of these studies that we're seeing actually have very fundamental flaws
1: Yeah, and a lot of it, to be fair, they were trying to make it as they go, and a lot of stuff got rushed. But that's part of the thing is we probably needed more conversation on some of this. I understand the push to get – you know the death rate is the death rate, and you don't want anybody to die that doesn't have to. But a lot of this was rushed. We'll push back on one thing. I know having teenage daughters, though, when they were having acne days, they actually enjoyed masks. So there was a small subset of children that didn't mind masks at school for that one specific reason, (laughs) trying to find a little levity in a dark topic.
0: I mean, it's – as much as yes, there's levity there. I have also been working with uh, kids up in the Bronx for the entirety of this pandemic. And you've seen children retreat into themselves as they hide behind these, these things in front of their faces, it becomes almost uh, like a, like a blanket of sorts, like a, like a soothing technique to be hidden. Um, And as far as ramifications for mental health goes, I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory.
1: Yeah. And again, uh, if you go back to how we start our conversation, one size fits all doesn't always work because you're always going to have people that don't fit in one size fits all. And this is a great example of it, especially the really younger kids who can't, you know, understand what's going on and you're trying to force them. And anybody's ever been around a toddler knows how that goes. Uh, Grace, Badalik, yeah. we're going to continue to talk to her after the break. Uh, since she is an artiste, an actor, a performer, we're going to talk about COVID and a part that hasn't been talked about a lot, the effects on arts and culture. We talk about culture war online. We're talking about the important culture stuff, what makes us humans, what makes us a people. We're going to get into that. Grace Bidellick, uh, Young Voices contributor, plenty more on Herd Tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Thanks for sticking with us. I'm Andrew Donson talking to Grace Bedalic. Am I getting better with it? Bedalic. Bedalic. All right. We'll keep practicing. And we got a whole segment to practice on. Grace a uh, Young Voices contributor. But let's put your other hat on. You're also a performer. You're a uh, working actor, actress. Uh, one thing that I think got lost with all the isolation and all the shutdown stuff, you're in the performance industry, you're in the entertainment industry. We lost a lot of cultural stuff. And I think it's been interesting watching people talk about things we can kind of laugh about it, like uh, going to the theater or going to a show or going to a music venue. People really, really miss that. And it's not just that they missed it uh, for mental health and stress relief reasons. That's a big economic hit on top of it too. talk about it. Cause I know Broadway got a lot of coverage. Uh, New York city has a thriving art scene, probably one of the best in the world. Talk about what it was like for COVID when that stuff just basically stopped.
0: Yeah hundred percent an entire industry had its legs ripped out from underneath it right um, there was nothing that people in the arts industry could do um, they couldn't hold auditions um, except for over uh, except for over zoom and we all know how that goes maybe we don't all know how that goes it doesn't go well is what I'm saying um, and uh, performances stopped for upwards of upwards of a year and a half um, and so uh, the industry was really, really just decimated, decimated by this. The West End was on the verge of collapse. Um, Broadway was in a, a, in a, in a bad way. It still is. Um, And uh, we will continue to see the ramifications of, of the pandemic um, on the entertainment industry uh, for years to come for years to come.
1: Now, for folks that go, well, it's the, it's just a bunch of actors and actresses. No, there's stagehands. There's a whole industry around this. Uh, there's some hard numbers involved in this. The entertainment industry, that's uh, performing arts, cultural arts. It's a $900 billion industry. It supports 5.2 million jobs. The job loss from the first two years of COVID is estimated by the Arts Council that they went from 2.5 million to 1.2 million job losses between February and April of 2000 to January of 2022. Uh, it's come back up a little bit, but there's still about 500,000 jobs off their peak. Um, the attendance went through the floor. It was down to 30% of before at its worst during uh, Omni uh, the Delta variant back in April. It was down to 30%. It's only back to about 68% that's a lot of hard economic numbers. That's a lot of tourism numbers in a place like New York city. And that's a lot of working class people that support these industries that just got decimated by this thing.
0: And I think unfortunately, uh, even before COVID happened, uh, shows have been struggling to recoup. It's never, it's never a, a guarantee that a show is going to, or that investors are going to into are going to recoup the money that they've put in, um, to these shows. Um, it's actually it's it's a rarity that they do. It's a rarity that a show is a smash hit. Um, and now, as we see more than half of Broadway theaters empty, um, it is even less likely uh, that investors will be will be recouping their their investments.
1: All right. So something obviously got you into the arts. Got you into acting. Talk about the human side of it. Like, why is that important? Because you talked about, you know, you work with kids. You were in New York City for the worst of this stuff. You saw it firsthand. Talk about what the arts means to people, not just as a performer. But, you know, if you're a performer, you started as a fan first. That's just how that works. Talk about the human side of it. And when that's taken away, we really do miss a part of us that's human. That is, it's not as important as your food and things like this, but it really is important to your psyche. And it is important to us as a people, isn't it?
0: Yes, 100 percent. The human side uh, is incredibly important. I always go back to uh, the dead poet society quote uh, where uh, Robin Williams character says the human race is full of passion, medicine, law, business, engineering. These are all noble pursuits um, and necessary to sustain life. But Poetry, beauty, romance, and love—these are what we stay alive for. Um, I think we saw a lot of that uh, in the pandemic, where people were recognizing, "Oh, I haven't seen live music in in two years," or "Oh, I haven't touched somebody uh, in 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 weeks or months or years." Um, people, even in New York City now, we're seeing people uh, just standing in in crowded crowded concert halls and and crying because they're able to experience these things again, because they're able to experience each other again, because they're able to see each other's faces again. Um, And so I think COVID was just, uh, it just emphasized um, how important human connection um, and artistry really is.
1: Do you think we've learned um, any human lessons out of COVID? We've been talking a lot about, you know, We've learned a lot about how our government functions or doesn't function, to be more specific. Uh, we've learned a lot about how science works and doesn't work. We've learned that the academic and science community needs to work on their communication to the common people by their mm-hmm. own admission and to their credit. They realize, like, hey, we're, we're not real good at this TV thing. We need to work on this. Those are all well and good. Have we learned any human lessons, do you think, from this COVID thing? Because you're a performer. You're on the human side of the scale of those things. Are, are we learning anything as human beings about connecting and talking to people and just appreciating life and that the famous dead since you want to go dead poet society the carpe diem part of the life are we seizing the day or are we just kind of reverting to our priors and going well this just confirms everything i thought before
0: you know i can't speak to the general human experience but i can speak to my own um i know that covid for me stripped my life of so many unnecessary distractions Um, and so many unnecessary pursuits um, and all sorts of unnecessary striving um, and brought me back to what was fundamentally most important in my life, which was family, which was connections with my friends and ensuring that my friends were okay, which was my relationship to God um, and uh, my ability to – reflect uh and um and uh process um and so i think we're seeing a lot of people um kind of get back to basics uh in a way that is is beautiful and i think will prove very fruitful specifically in there in the artistic sphere like i can't wait to see what people have been creating um and i think we've only just kind of seen the tip of the iceberg as far as that goes
1: yeah grace pedalec uh staying with us on her tell great conversation uh let's take that one step forward forward um we go forward i know on our program we talk about we do culture and politics i don't think those are uh separable i think they go together and i don't mean in the culture roaring way that people have just kind of made a, a business model out of it you know Politics is how people govern themselves and culture is what those people are. I just don't think you can separate those two things. When you look at it from the culture side, like you just talked about it, stripping away the nonsense. Let me just ask you, why do you do it? Because, you know, you have your career, you're a working actor, you're kind of living your dream. Why get in the dirty pool end of it with the doing the politics stuff?
0: I think that's a great question. And I would I would ask that to you as well. Um, My answer is politics. Affects policy, which affects people. Um, And so I've seen um, in real time the ramifications of political decisions made by our elite class on people like you and me and like my brother and like my family um, and like the kids that I'm involved with in the Bronx. Um, And I think if we care about each other, we should care about politics as well.
1: Yeah. For me, that's exactly what it is, is, you know, um, it's a people thing and I keep watching the news and they never talk about issues as people and they don't talk about politics as people. And they talk about demographics without somehow realizing that those demographics are all people. And I just got tremendously frustrated, especially when, you know, I went through my health stuff where I couldn't work a quote unquote real job anymore. And, you know, now I do this for 15 hours a day, but, um, I just got tremendously frustrated of like, no, this is not how you talk about people. Yeah. You know, the, the news networks, and, and I don't want to bash media because we have lots of good friends in journalism. The good journalists, they're always, you know, it's, it's something somebody told me about writing years ago when I first started writing. And I remember it is like, whatever you're writing about, you're writing about people, whatever yeah. business you're in, you're in the people business, you know, it, it's about people and so much of our media and culture and politic discourse was completely devoid of people it was all buzzwords and it's all uh just issues and i want this policy and my team needs to win and it's all power structures and it's like that's why you guys nobody can talk to anybody anymore is because everybody's just talking about these things as if they're in the abstract and you're not dealing with people anymore
0: right right i totally agree and this kind of uh, polarization um that we see is really unfortunate you know I was in a musical theater program in college that was entirely liberal <laughs> except for me um, and we would have i was i I was able to have uh, open conversations with people and uh, sit down with people over breakfast and talk about policy, or um, sit down with uh, people who didn't necessarily understand uh, a conservative perspective, and speak openly about why I believe the things that I believed because I believed that they thought the best of me. Right? They were they were assuming my best intentions, and I think that that is what we've that is to a large extent what we've lost. Um, we've lost the ability to sit down at a table over a meal uh, with a person who we vehemently disagree on as far as policy goes and say to them, you know, I think you're wrong, but I genuinely think that you think that you want the best for the most people. You want the best thing for the most people. And so I'm going to hear you out Um, and you know, as I have been in 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 theater and in the arts, um, I have seen it progress to uh, this place where we are now, which is this kind of cultural illiberalism, where if you don't fall in line with this kind of new orthodoxy, um, you are not allowed <laughs> to be a part of the industry, um, and so it it makes me very sad because I actually think that it it um, it is detrimental to to the caliber of art that we can make. It's detrimental to the, to the quality of our friendships that we can have. It's detrimental to uh, the interactions with people that we have on a daily basis. Um, And it's also detrimental to our mental, mental health when we're, when we're categorizing people in such strict ways. Um, And so I, it just, it makes me really sad.
1: Yeah. I I think the, the thing that, social media does. And the reason I, I always say, like, just tweet, tweet at everybody as if they're sitting in front of you it usually solves a lot of this, but we, we otherize people so fast. And then it just all goes downhill from there because yeah. you just forget you're dealing with a human being. And that goes both ways and everybody does it and that we all are guilty, but yeah, mm-hmm. I'm with, I'm with you. If we just, you know, you, you can get along with people you disagree with on everyone. If you just start with the basic human level of, okay, we're, we're going to figure out a way to just coexist in the same space here and then go from there. Instead of the other way around of looking for reasons not to get along with people. Uh Grace Bedalek. Bedalek. Dang. <laughs> don't keep working. Grace Bedalek. I can't say it, but it's a fantastic conversation. Um, let folks know where they can follow you, what you have going on. Uh I don't know if you want to sing a song or anything, but let them know where they can what you got coming up and what's going on in your world so they can follow you.
0: You know, if you want to hear me sing a song, you can go to YouTube. You can look me up. I'm sure you'll find Anything from a tribute song that I sang when I was twelve to Barack Obama and or uh, uh, my 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 spots on a on Strawberry Shortcake um, or my performances in in at Michigan uh, in musical theater. Uh, but if you want to read my writing, you can go to my website, which is grace Daily d a l e y And you'll find my EP there. You'll find my writing there. um, Or you can follow me on Instagram at grace underscore daily.
1: Yep. And she's a young voices contributor. Uh, A great, great group of people. Uh, Great example. in you different kind of background, but exactly, you know, brings a good perspective. And we love working with folks like you appreciate you. It's not every day I get any oatmeal on the show. Uh, (laughs) That'll be a real niche reference for people that have kids uh grace thank you so much for the conversation and the time today really appreciate it look forward to having you back again
0: andrew thank you so much for thank letting you
1: me. anytime man Hi, welcome back to Herd Tale. Quick political note here. Uh, The Iowa caucuses, the hawkeye Cockeye, Rush used to always call them, uh, they've been under a lot of fire. Now, folks may have forgotten, but 2020 did not go well out in Iowa. Uh, The caucuses were a mess. It wasn't all the volunteers' fault. It's an antiquated, ridiculous system. It has no place in modern politics. I know it's quaint. I know it's traditional. Look, there's lots of things that were quaint and traditional that we got rid of. Because we needed to, and our country does not need chaos on the front end of our presidential elections. Well, the Washington Post now has a long piece out. You can read it. Uh, this particular one, Dan Ball's longtime correspondent for the Washington Post, talks about the Democratic Party is taking aim at the nomination process. They want to get rid of it. They want it to either be a primary or they're going to move it to some other state. This is going to be a long running debate. Now, I know we're just now getting into the swing of things for the 2022 midterms, but 2024 is already in full effect. We're watching people position for the presidency. There's people already going to start visiting Iowa. There's ground teams. The people who want to run for president are already paying attention to Iowa. And if it's the caucus system or if it's a primary system or if Iowa gets bypassed, that's going to change a lot of strategies because people start way ahead of time 10 months, a year ahead of time, setting up camp in Iowa. So it's going to keep an eye on. In fact, we've already reached out to someone in Iowa to come on the program, explain the caucus situation, what really happened, what's going on in the future. Story we're going to continue to touch on here on Herd Tell as we stay ahead of the news. I know 2024 feels like a long way away, but 2022 felt like a long way away just a little bit ago, and here we are already. So we're going to keep an eye on it, the Iowa caucuses, and how we're going to elect the next president of the United States, or if President Biden manages to get re-election. Something to keep an eye on. We'll be back with more Hertel right after this. Uh, Hertel Show, we always try to end on something that's a little happier or lighthearted. This isn't really either one of those but it is a triumph of the human spirit uh in odessa uh in ukraine famous odessa opera house their social media posts of the front of the opera house barricaded in the 40s during world war ii and barricaded today from the russian aggression and putin what he's trying to do to their country stark images comparatively but the opera company obviously has some time on their hands because you're not going to be doing Verdi's a or Il Trove or Tchaikovsky's Alata because that's what they were supposed to be doing this month. Instead, they're practicing first aid and learning how to use a rifle like everybody else. However, uh, operawire.com says this, as the city of Odessa prepares to be attacked by the Russian army, members of the Odessa Opera Company joined volunteers in building barricades and sandbagging sandbagging walls to protect the city. Now the singers are currently undergoing training in first aid and learning how to use the rifle. Additionally, Throughout the week, many singers and musicians are performing concerts in front of the opera house to give comfort to the citizens. Just this past day, members of company performed the national anthem in front of the tank trap set to protect the area from the opera building, while the chorus performed from Vapisario from Verde's Nabucco. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing any of this right. Keith Conrad listens to this program. I'm sure he'll let me know if I'm messing any of this up uh earlier in the week though a ukrainian naval band played hey i know this one don't worry be happy outside the concert venue the opera house has been described as the city's cultural heart and as a prominent part of the city on social media a picture of the house that was shared shows the opera house had a previously set up in a barricade during world war ii the company has also been active on social media sharing pictures performing sending messages of hope and requesting help to close the sky. That's the no-fly zone that I understand why they want that, but that's not coming because we might as well just either fight the Russians or not, that there's not going to be an intermediate step. But uh, go watch all the social media posts. They're singing in the streets. They're performing. They're trying to maintain spirits as best they can. Brave stuff, a long tradition in human history in times of crisis. We sing, we perform, we uplift. And the Odessa Opera is doing just that. That'll do it from Herd Tell. Thank you so much for joining us. If you haven't subscribed yet, please make sure you hit that button. If you're watching on YouTube, uh, if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, you can subscribe to there. On Well, you'll get tell each and every weekday. Plus, you'll get the good talk interview segments every afternoon. Twice on Sunday's show started at this weekend. That's interview clips from the week that was uh, really good response to that. Appreciate that. Also, we're working on some new long form podcasts. We're going to really delve into some situations policies ideas things that are going on in the world so we can discern the times that we live in we have 36 of those in the archive if you're subscribed or following you get all that for free only cost you a click and we appreciate you so very much so however you're watching and or listening wherever you are across street, around the world we hope you and yours are well we hope you're well fed and we'll talk to you tomorrow on Hurt tell All the music on HerTel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day,
0: you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies.